Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Um, they have left me a lot of time today. And I'm going to break that fifth rule of all teaching, which is to never promise that we might get out early. But we could beat the Baptist today to lunch. Um, but we'll see how this goes. Why don't we stand and hear God's word this morning from uh, Matthew chapter 1. And if I could get a volunteer uh, with a stopwatch to just time this reading. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child, but by the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word, and every bit of it is true and given to us for our good this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your ways are not our ways, and your thoughts are not our thoughts, because if we were writing this story, there is no way we would do this. Um, and we thank you that it has that peculiar tincture that true things have. I pray, Lord, that you would just assist us to hear from you this morning, that I would hear from you even in the process of sharing what I think you've laid on my heart. And bless your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Time, Billy? Well, let's not have a schism. Uh, thank you. You can be seated. All right. We'll go with 113. Okay. That's daunting. Does this scenario sound familiar to you? Turn, 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 flop, check the clock, sigh in frustration, turn again, right, left, Add that to the manuscript. Um, try and pray. Get an elbow from your wife as a not-so-subtle sign that you should settle down over there. You gently turn again. You pray and try to meditate on Scripture. Thoughts are a swirl. Check clock again. Sigh again. 
At this point, it's decision time. You may be closer to the time for actually getting up than you were to the time when you laid down, at which point you decide, let's just get up and make the coffee and start the day. If you're not that deep into the morning, maybe you get up and discover on television that there's a knife that can actually cut a penny. And beyond all hope, you realize, I do not have that knife. And strangely, I feel that I should now. You zombie through the day. Occasionally, you snap into reality, but for the most part, you are a million miles away mentally. You visit the dry cleaners and the person behind the counter asks you if you're okay. If that's not bad enough, you decide to grab some lunch at Jimmy John's and the person behind the counter literally reaches out and touches you and said, take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. And now you are just filled with conflicting thoughts of both strange comfort from strangers and yet ghastly mortifying thoughts that I look that bad I put on makeup this morning I didn't realize that it was that obvious and you realize that you're not as good at masking your heart as you believe your prayers are more honest than they've ever been and you fret and you struggle for faith You're just hoping for a candle's worth of light at the end of some dark tunnel that you now find yourself in. You hope for any word or sign from God that he has you and has this and he's going to come through. But you're not sure. You have some friends and some family that you need to talk to about what's going on in your life. But quite honestly, you're not really sure that you're up to it. Because you're not sure what you're going to receive. Will you receive comfort in their ear and in their words? Or will they, like Job's friends, contend with one who speaks out of anguish, not realizing that those words are for the wind. Have you been there? You there right now? Sudden change is difficult. Even if the change is positive... It's still really, really difficult to go through a season of sudden change. But most often when we experience these kind of nights and zombie days, it's when that sudden change is not a good thing. Whatever the change agent was, the the event, the diagnosis that you got about yourself or a loved one, the letter from the IRS in the mailbox. The happening is hard enough. But on top of that is everything else that comes with it. 
the hundreds of questions you must now face that you didn't even realize you needed to be asking or answering. The humbling and sometimes horrifying realization that you're not, in fact, in control of your life, let alone that of everybody's around you. Uh, the shame that might come with a failure in your life or with a failure that you're associated with through some loved one. or And the things you learn about yourself in those moments. That you just wished weren't true. <laughs> and you know what? Sometimes sudden change even blows up your view of reality. You see life in a way you didn't see it before. Maybe innocence and naivete is destroyed, but all of that's hard. So I want you to think about Joseph for a few moments. It took a minute and 13 seconds to read that. I did it in 45, but I've always been an overachiever. Um, you know, one of the tricky things about reading history, and, and especially biblical history, is what takes us such a brief moment to digest, we fail to realize is also a lived history that was not as quick for people to go through. Eight verses, a minute and 13 seconds, with lots of dramatic pauses, and we move on. This is Joseph's story. It's really one of the few times in Scripture that we actually get to know Joseph, and we don't really get to know him very much here. It's just a strange thing. I really just want to impress one idea on you this morning, and it's this. Jesus entering your life always creates problems. Jesus entering your life or doing a fresh work in your life will always create complications. Nobody ever told me that. We had Frisbees that said Jesus is fun. And yet Jesus told us, unless you're willing to deny everything and follow me, you're not worthy of me. You think that's easy? He said, count the cost. <laughs> he didn't hand out Frisbees. I don't know if they had Frisbees. He complicates our plans. He complicates our perspective. And most importantly, probably, as we'll see in Joseph's life, he complicates our power. Joseph and Mary are engaged. Uh, betrothed was the legal term. It was a year-long agreement. It would take a divorce to break this up. So here's two rural teens living their lives, planning their future, preparing for a wedding 
and life together, when out of the blue, behold, full stop. Mary turns up pregnant. That's the way it says it, isn't it? She was found to be with child. The unthinkable, the unbelievable, the unimaginable had occurred. Joseph, in all his thoughts about this, likely never, ever saw this coming. If he had any thoughts about how this marriage could possibly fall off the rails, I promise you this one was not in the pantheon of ideas about how this was going to break up. It's Mary. What are we told about Joseph and Mary? Well, first of all, they're never presented as perfect people, but they are really held up as some of the primest examples of the best of saints in the Bible. Joseph, we're told, is a just man. And there's several ideas in that word. Um, First of all, he's lawful. Meaning, he's one that is devoted follower of the law of God. But also, in the mixture of this word in the Greek, there's a, there's a tincture of being a compassionate person. So, Joseph is not one of those self-righteous legalists who it's all truth and no love. The best way to sum it up is, these are just really, really good people. We would love to sit down with them. One day we will. This would have been so out of character for Mary that it just would have melted everybody to even consider this possibility. Despite the story that, don't worry, this is from God. Some of you that have grown up in a small town can imagine what that's like. Mary Schmitch in 1998, wrote an article for the Chicago Tribune that later became known as the Sunscreen Song. This was her column, Advice to Graduates. I'm going to jump down a few lines, and she says this. Don't worry about the future, or worry, but know that worrying is as effective as trying to solve an algebra equation by chewing bubble gum. The real troubles in your life are apt to be, the, be things that never crossed your worried mind. The kind that blindsides you at 4 p.m. on some idle Tuesday. Sudden change is hard. The arrival into the lives of Mary and Joseph wrecked Joseph's plans and Mary's. Like a blindside on some idle Tuesday. Nothing would ever be the same. In fact, Joseph twice has his plans changed in this story. Plan A was marry the lovely Virgin Mary, settle down, do carpentry, have lots of kids. But um, Mary is found to be with child. Full stop to plan A. Plan B was divorce Mary quietly, have 200 awkward conversations, keep my head down, go to work, and wait for something else to happen that will take the focus off me. Um, Behold, an angel appears. 
And we hear, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her, it actually is from the Holy Spirit. She's going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This question came to me while I was preparing. Mary got a heads up before things happened. Why didn't Joseph get a heads up before things happened? We don't really know how long Mary was pregnant before Joseph found out. The text just said she was found to be with child. So I'm assuming that that means three, four months. Uh, maybe she started to show. Um, I'm not sure how long that was. But there was a period of time where Mary knew what was going on. And Joseph had no idea. And then, boom, it was discovered that Mary was pregnant. And now Joseph's world collapses around him. Why, God? Why didn't you let Joseph on the story earlier? I mean, you're already in town visiting Mary. It can't be that far over to Joseph's house. You could have said, listen, I was just talking to Mary. I wanted to come over and just... She's going to tell you some really weird stuff, and it's okay, it's, it's true, but I'm going to let her tell you. We don't know where Joseph got the news, maybe from Mary, maybe from somebody in town. Hey, what's up with Mary? She's starting to, not only she's fat, but... The word considered, when it says that Joseph was considering these things, is really in an aorist tense. And I'm not just showing off my Greek knowledge, because that really is the extent of it. Um, it really means he had made up his mind. But there's also the sense in the structure that as he was considering this, but the whole idea is that Joseph probably spent maybe several nights, who knows how long, turn, 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 check the moon, no clocks. Um, sigh, pray, meditate, contemplate, fret. And when he had finally made up his mind, it was at that point that the angel of the Lord appeared to him to, for the second time, change his plans. Why? And I'm just going to admit, this is completely conjecture. Maybe God waited so the world could see through Joseph's story the kind of person God chose to be his son's earthly daddy. One who, when faced with very difficult blind side, still chose the most loving way to be lawful that he had opened to him. One who, when finally let into the loop of God's plan, obediently submitted, though it was going to cost him dearly. 
One who, when given the choice between the easy path of rejecting God's plan, chose instead to say, in essence, not my plans, but your plans be done. This is the guy who got to raise the king of the universe. This is the guy who molded, who modeled for Jesus submission to God in the face of a dark and cloudy future. This is the guy who modeled for Jesus trust in the word of God. Years later, Jesus would say to his father, Not my will, but your will be done. And I wonder where the first place he learned that was. I mean, the uh, most important gift you can give to your children is submission to the Father in heaven. Jesus entering your life will change your plans, and Jesus in our lives pretty frequently does the same. If you're going to do business, serious business with Jesus, be prepared to have your plans upset, turned over, and interrupted. But don't fear. The story God is writing is far better than the meager existence we had planned. Carpentry, family, diet 55, or raise the Son of God. Not only will Jesus change your plans, he often changes your perspective. And mostly he changes the way you see you. And this is maybe the hardest of all. But he changes the way you see you because he fundamentally changes the way you see him. You know, truth is crunchy. Whenever we're confronted with truth, even wonderful, glorious, great news kind of truth, if it isn't what we thought it was, it can be really disturbing. It's hard to brush up against crunchy things. Consider what Joseph heard contrasted with what his normal Jewish person expectations were. Jewish messianic expectations was of a political military figure who would end hundreds of years of oppression by the Gentile powers. Messiah would, it was expected, be a special Moses-like kind of prophet leader. Pre-Christian ideas about Messiah did not include pre-existence. It did not include miraculous conception. He wasn't necessarily expected to perform miracles, though miracles would have been associated with him. That Messiah was divine, literally God in the flesh, was unheard of. Messiah would suffer, but for the cause. He would deliver from oppression and usher in times of prosperity for Israel and then be lifted into exaltation. Joseph is told not to fear taking Mary as his wife because, A, this child has a miraculous conception. B, this child will be a son. By the way, that is a really helpful piece of knowledge for Joseph to have. Have you thought about that? This is pre-sonogram. 
And I know we could say, oh, she's carrying low or she's carrying high. And we got all that. But don't you know that as soon as baby boy Jesus was delivered, there was a little bit of... I mean, I know it's an angel of the Lord. I personally have never had an encounter with the angel of the Lord. So Zachariah did, and he still doubted. So maybe Joseph is... That was just a helpful piece. This child is to be named Jesus because... This child will save his people from their sins. And this child is the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. And this child will be known as Emmanuel, which, by the way, Joseph, means God with us. At the beginning of the revelation, Joseph is told not to fear to take Mary as his wife. I'm kind of thinking that by the end of this revelation, Joseph is a little more worried about what all this means and a little less worried about his and Mary's relationship. This is a 180. You know, there's, there's the thought that the early church turned Jesus into God. That they sort of inflated him over time. Because let's face it, it's, it's a lot more impressive to say, I walked around for three years with God than saying, I walked around for three years with a Jewish teacher that was basically like a Jewish Buddha, a Judah, uh, who then, you know, was killed by the Romans. And that's the working theory. The Jewish people would have been the last people on the face of the planet to have invented a story that a man was actually God. It just doesn't add up. The world of Joseph was ready to receive a political deliverer. They were not ready to receive Jesus as he really was. But taking Jesus as he is really is the only option. And it's crunchy. It creates problems. For how we see ourselves and really how we see ultimate reality. For us, what kind of Jesus do I want versus what kind of Jesus do I really need and have can be quite a conundrum. Culturally speaking, Joseph's culture was quite willing to have a Messiah who would come and be a political savior. One who would rescue them from Rome and usher in prosperity. Our culture is quite willing to have a Jesus who is full of sentimentality and is affirming of us and everything about us. We even like most of his teaching. Especially the turn the other cheek stuff. So we may be ready to take him as one of the great moral teachers of the world. But the Jesus Joseph received was not the Jesus Joseph expected or perhaps wanted. And the Jesus that was and is and is to come is not necessarily the Jesus we want. But he is the Jesus Joseph, Israel, and the world, and us most needed one author wrote this we may note in passing that Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher he didn't produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him he produced mainly three effects hatred terror and adoration there's no trace of people expressing mild approval Men and women, this morning, my challenge would be this. Am I guilty of just mildly approving Jesus? 
then maybe I've never really met the actual Jesus. Hatred, terror, or adoration are all you see in the New Testament of responses to Jesus when he met people. Jesus really isn't an unusual name. It's just the Greek version of Joshua, which is roughly translated Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. There were a lot of little Jesuses running around. It's a very popular name. Joshua was an important figure. If they had trading cards, Joshua would have been a hot seller. But notice something. Why are you to call him Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sins. From their sins? Not Gentile oppression? Not from generations of mistreatment? Not from the yoke of political and social marginalization? Nailed it. I was worried about that word. No, but freedom from an even greater tyrant, a greater exploiter, an even greater suppressor of humanity, which is sin. Becky Pippert wrote it this way. True sacrilege is pretending there is nothing wrong with us when rectifying our problem costs God the life of his son. God's mercy and justice are finally reconciled through the cross. Why did God take such dramatic efforts to rescue us? Because he wanted so much to forgive us. And the amazing thing is, we didn't even know we needed it. That's so like God, isn't it? That means, by the way, that we can face our problems squarely. That means we can confess the darkest, most humiliating realities of our lives without despair and paralysis. No one can say, quote, all this talk about God being loving is very touching, but if he really knew me, he would change his tune fast. The biblical message to us is, I do know you. I know you far better than you know yourself. And you're in worse shape than you even realize. But do you think you have done something worse than killing my son? And if I'm willing to forgive you for that, then how can I not forgive you for anything else? He came to save his people from their sins. And was happy to do it. Or consider Martin Luther's letter to Melanchthon. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true, not an imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners, just real ones. So be a sinner and let your sins be strong. But let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin and death and the world. Jesus coming into our lives creates complications. Changes our plans. He messes with our thoughts of who we are. Ultimately, he messes with our power center. Naming something is an act of sovereignty. Adam was charged with naming all the animals. To name your child is a remarkable thing, even in our day. 
But then it was the father's right. We saw this last week. Joseph doesn't get that option. You're going to call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Beloved, when Jesus comes into your life, he changes your plans, he changes your perspective, and most of all, he takes you off the throne of your life and puts himself squarely on it. So where do we find hope in the midst of sleepless nights, shattered plans, and zombie days? A couple of places. First of all, get a bigger vision for God's plan for you. C.S. Lewis wrote this, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. Listen carefully, this is the punchline. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace that he intends to come and live in himself. (laughs) Jesus is the ultimate Chip and Joanna. But listen, it hurts. Okay? And it's okay to acknowledge that. And it's okay to say to him, this hurts. I have no idea what you're doing. I'm not sure I want to be a palace. But if that's what you want, come on in. Secondly, I may not know the plan of God in its fullest, but because he sent Jesus for me, I can trust the heart of God in the midst of my darkness. Somebody said to me recently in a moment of great anguish, I just want to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I said, not to be corny, but that light is Jesus. And he's walking towards you. And finally, we have this assurance. that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I want to close with a poem by William William Cooper. But I want to give you a little background on him for those of you that aren't familiar. William Cooper, one of the great hymnists, passed through a great uh, crisis in his life. He tried to end his life by taking uh, laudanum. Then he hired a horse-drawn cabbie, ordering the driver to take him to the Thames, intending to throw himself off from the bridge. It was one of London's foggiest nights. They drove for an hour without reaching the chosen spot. Disgusted, he decided to get out and walk there. He found, to his surprise, they had actually gone in a circle, and he was back at his own doorstep. 
The next morning he fell upon a knife, but the blade broke and his life was spared. He then tried to hang himself and was cut down unconscious but still alive. Then one morning, in a moment of strange cheerfulness, he took up his Bible and read a verse in the letter to the Romans. In a moment, he received strength to believe and rejoiced in the forgiving power of God. Some time later, Cooper summed up his faith in God's loving dealing with him in a great hymn, which has become a favorite among Christians. God moves in mysterious ways as wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea. And rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain.